O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably on your whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. By the effectual working of your providence, carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation. Let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up, and things which had grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We are in Ephesians chapter 2 today. So if you have your Bibles, um, please open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to take a close look at verses 8 and 9 this morning. But for the sake of context, we're going to begin at verse 1, chapter 2, and begin to read through the entire section. But our concentration this morning will be on just these two verses, verses 8 and 9. So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast." For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are saved by grace, not by works. I'm sure most of you are probably familiar with the story of John Newton. Uh, Newton is the author of what is, I think beyond doubt, the most famous hymn in the English language. Uh, Even people who are not Christians nevertheless sing it with gusto, especially at funerals. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The story of John Newton is a fascinating one, and if you already know it, well, just bear with me because it's a story that bears repeating. John Newton was born, as you can see on the screen, in 1725. His father was a merchant seaman, and at a very young age, children had to grow up very fast in those days, he went off to sea with his father. Uh, his father was not only a merchant seaman, he was also involved in the slave trade, which existed in the British Empire at that time. And John Newton grew up to have a disregard for the value of human life. He really didn't care about anyone or anything. And as time went by, he really became what can only be described as a reprobate. He was a terrible individual. At one point, he had a reputation for being the worst swearer in the British Navy, which is saying something, if you know anything about some sailors in those days. He was notorious. He was, as I said, involved in the slave trade with his father. 
When his father died, uh, he continued on, captained a number of slave ships himself, but made a number of bad business ventures and investments and lost that and ended up being just a navigator on board a number of these ships. But he was so despised, so hated by his fellow crewmen that at one point on a trip to Africa, they marooned him. They left him behind. And there, he himself became a slave. He was actually purchased by a slave trader and sold as a white slave. And there he was abused and mistreated. And you would have thought that that would have given him a completely different perspective, but it did not. It hardened him. And he became a brutal individual. Finally, another ship came to port and rescued him. It actually came at the behest of some friends. Uh, what few friends he had, friends of his father, really, who by this point had died. John Newton was taken on board this ship. This was the ship that was rescuing him, mind you. Uh, but he got into a drunken brawl. He actually broke into the captain's store of rum, tore up the ship, and eventually was knocked overboard. And many on the crew really wanted to leave him behind. They, they didn't even want to pick him back up. Nobody was willing to lower a boat to rescue him. Finally, somebody decided that they couldn't leave him behind, and so they threw him, not a line, but a harpoon. And they harpooned him in his thigh. And for the rest of his life, he would have a gaping, oozing wound as a reminder of the incident. At that point, they took him, and they threw him into the bilge, into the bottom of the ship, where they had that filthy water, and with that gaping and oozing wound, he contracted a fever. It was a terrible situation, and on top of everything else, the ship got caught in a terrible storm. And it looked as though he was going to die. And while he'd been down there in that bilge, somebody evidently had thrown him a copy of Thomas Akempis's book on the life of Christ, on the imitation of Christ. And it was the only thing that he had to read. But as he read it, and he looked at the life of Christ, he began to realize what a terrible mistake he had made. And there in that terrible place, as the ship was being tossed about, no guarantee that they were going to survive, John Newton repented. He repented of his sins, and he made a promise that if he ever made it back safe and sound to England, he would turn away from this life of wickedness, and he would give his life to Christ. And indeed, he did. If you know anything about the rest of his life, you know that he would have a profound influence on a young man by the name of William Wilberforce. John Newton would go to England. He would become a clergyman in the Church of England. He would have pastor a church for the rest of his life, and he would have a profound influence on this man, William Wilberforce, who single-handedly almost campaigned for the eradication of the slave trade in the British Empire. And as an autobiographical description of his own life, he wrote that great hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. If you're a Christian, that really should be the hymn for your life. Do you recognize yourself as a, as a wretch? I've always said there are a few things that a, a preacher can say to the congregation that is more irritating, uh, they can get a preacher into more trouble than to call his congregation a group of wretches. <laughs> it's always amazed me, though, when we play that hymn, people, tears streaming down their face, they're crying them out that they, have, they themselves are wretches. I guess it's all right for us to call ourselves wretches as long as nobody else does it. 
that's really what we were, isn't it? And it is only by grace that we have been saved. God's amazing grace. But you see, you can only appreciate the amazing nature of God's grace if you realize that you really are a wretch. That's why grace was so precious to John Newton, because as he looked back over the course of his life, he realized how terrible he was. He recognized what he deserved, and what he received from God was not what he deserved, but what he did not deserve. He received mercy. Well, that's why the Apostle Paul, before he gets to verses 8 and 9, it is by grace that you have been saved by faith, and it is not your own doing, reminds us of what we once were. And we've already looked at these verses Paul says, our situation was really a dire situation. Before Christ intervened in our lives, we were three things. We were what? We were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, Paul says. We were not healthy, we were not whole, and we were not merely sick. Sometimes we sing about being sin-sick and sorrow-worn, but the reality, Paul says, is that we were not merely sick. If you're sick, there's always the chance that you could recover. There's always the chance that you can do something to somehow revive your soul. But Paul says our situation was much worse than that. We were not merely sick. We were certainly not healthy or whole. He says we were dead, dead in our trespasses and in our sins. As far as a relationship with God was concerned, it was non-existent. We were not only dead, he said, we were following the ways of this world. I said we were like spiritual zombies, if you were here some weeks ago. Physically alive, walking around, transacting business, but spiritually dead. Following the ways of this world. Thomas Cranmer had a wonderful expression. He said, whatever the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. And of course, the problem is that if you are inclined towards sin, if you are dead in your trespasses and in your sins, then the only thing your heart will desire are sinful things. So your heart will desire sinful things, your will will choose them, and your mind will do what? Justify the action. That's the story of Eden, isn't it? Adam, what is it that you have done? Have you eaten of that tree that I told you not to eat from? Instead of taking responsibility, he says, the woman thou gavest me. And we pointed out it's not even blaming the woman. It's worse than that. He's blaming God. He says, it's the woman you gave me. That's the problem. If anybody's at fault here, Lord, it's not me. It's you. Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We were following the ways of this world and the way that we lived. And as a consequence, he said, we were by nature, verse 3, children of wrath. Not children of God but children of wrath, that is to say, under the judgment of a just and holy deity. It's a particularly dire situation. And yet you get to verse 4 and those two marvelous words, but God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think I pointed out to you last week, said that that is the gospel in a nutshell. No matter how terrible our situation, we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, but God. We were following the ways of this world, but God. We were children of wrath under the judgment of a holy and righteous God, but God. But God what? But God, who is rich in mercy, did three things for us. First of all, Paul says he made us alive, even when we were dead. 
See, what's so wonderful about that is that dead people can't do anything for themselves. You can preach to them all day long, but they can never respond. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead. It's the first thing Paul says. Second thing that God does for us is he raised us up with Christ. He not only gave us a new life, he raised us up. I love that expression, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. What does that mean? I think that means he gives us a new outlook. Some time ago, we had a person who did some filming around St. Philip's, and he had a drone. And he took the drone, and he took that drone, and he took it up around the steeple. And we were able to actually look at him as he was doing this. And it was remarkable. It was a perspective that you never get. Most of us stand here on street level, and we look up at that magnificent spire. This was an opportunity to look down. A whole new perspective. A whole new perspective on the church, on the neighborhood, on the city. You see, that's what happens when you come into relationship with God. He raises you up to a point where you get a whole new perspective, a whole new vista on life. All of a sudden, you begin to understand what really matters and what really doesn't matter. I've been with lots of people when they have been dying over the course of my ministry. Let me tell you, when you are facing your own death, when you are facing the reality of your own mortality, you get a whole new perspective you suddenly begin to realize what really matters in life and the things that really don't. Oftentimes we think that the most important life, thing in life is what? Making another dollar, making another sale, whatever it may be. But let me tell you, in all the years that I have been a priest, and I've heard lots of people utter regrets on their deathbed, but I can tell you one I've never heard. I've never heard anybody ever say, gee, I wish I'd gone to the office one more day. Never heard it. Well, that's what Paul says. God has raised us up with Christ. He's given us a whole new perspective on what matters, on what's important, of what is significant. And finally, he said, he has seated us with Christ. He's raised us up with Christ, but he's also seated us with Christ, which I think means a new relationship, a relationship of intimacy. Paul's going to unpack that as we go through this second chapter. He's going to say, at one point, you were far away from Christ. You were removed from Christ. You were distant from Christ. But now, through the blood of Christ, you who were far away have been brought near. I'm going to talk about this in the sermon today. It is not enough to know about Christ. You have to know Christ. You have to be in fellowship with Christ. You have to be in a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful picture of this kind of intimacy. You can find it in John's Gospel. It's at the, it's the Last Supper of all places. Jesus is sitting at the table with his disciples. Just listen to these verses. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? At Jesus' side. Jesus loved him. He was close to Jesus. Peter wanted to know who it was who was going to betray the Lord. 
And he had to turn to the one who was closest to the Lord. And we're told that John did what at that point? He put his head against Jesus' breast. That's a wonderful picture of intimacy, isn't it? Have you ever thought, when you're going through life's difficulties, that you would just like to crawl up inside, just crawl up in the Lord's lap and feel his arms and fold you? Have you ever imagined that? I've imagined that at times when I'm going through difficulty and I'm just thinking if there are points where I just don't know if we're going to make it. Just sometimes imagine crawling up into the Lord's lap like a little child. You see, that's what the Apostle Paul says God has given us. Here we were, dead in our trespasses and in our sins, following the ways of the world, under the judgment of God, but he what? But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead. He gave us a new life. He raised us up with Christ. He gave us a whole new outlook, a new perspective on things. And finally, he gave us a new relationship and intimacy. Did you ever notice when we say the Lord's Prayer in the liturgy, one of the things we say is, and now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say? Bold. See, we can go boldly into the presence of God because we are His children. We have a special relationship with Him, a special intimacy. So that's who we were. This is what we've become And Paul says, it is all by grace. It is all by grace. Now, what is grace? Now, I've been giving you a definition of grace for two years. What is grace? (laughs) Here it is. It's God's undeserved, unearned favor. God shows us favor. It's unearned, and it is certainly undeserved. But because a picture is worth a thousand words, let me give you a picture of grace. The story is told from the life of Henry Morehouse, who lived from 1840 to 1880, only a brief time, 40 years. Henry Morehouse was an Englishman. He was a Methodist minister, and he was a social worker in the worst slums of London, during the Victorian era. We're talking about abject poverty in the midst of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, If you have pictures of Dickens in your mind, that's the picture that you should imagine. And Henry Morehouse was working in this very difficult part of London, and one day he came down the street and he saw a little girl come out of a shop carrying a pitcher full of milk. She was dirty, her Clothes were torn. She was obviously quite poor. And as she came out of the shop carrying this pitcher of milk, she slipped on one of the cobblestones, fell, and the pitcher broke, and the milk ran all over the street. And the little girl began to cry uncontrollably. Immediately, Morehouse ran to her side, and he began to comfort her, and he said, Don't cry, little girl, don't cry. And the little girl began to shout out, No, my mommy will whip me. My mommy will whip me. And Morehouse said, no, 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 your mommy will not whip you. We can mend this. And so he sat down and he tried to put the pitcher back together again. And the little girl got hopeful. She came from a family where things were frequently broken and they had to be mended because you couldn't afford to buy new things. So as he began to put the pieces back together in his haste, 
He knocked it all apart again. And the little girl began to cry all the louder. My mommy's going to whip me. My mommy's going to whip me. And Morehouse said, no, no, your, your mommy's not going to whip you. And so he began to show her that it could be put back together again. And so she tried to put it back together again. They got the whole thing back together again. And as she was trying to attach the handle, the whole thing fell apart again. And at this point, the girl was just wailing, just crying out in despair. So much so that Morehouse didn't know what he could do, except that he took her up in his arms, he ran down the street, went into a shop, pulled money out of his own pocket, he didn't have much, and he bought her a whole new pitcher, took her down the street, had it filled with milk, brought her back out on the street, wiped her tears and said, now, will your mommy whip you? And she said, oh, no, sir, this is a much better pitcher than we ever had before. Let me tell you, that is exactly what God has done with us. We have made a mess of our lives. They are broken. They are shattered. And we try, try with all our might to put the pieces back together again, you see, but we cannot do it. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, picked us up, made us alive with Christ. And he went down the street, shattered remnants of our life. And he gave us an altogether new one. A new perspective, a new intimacy, a new relationship, better than the one before. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. T'was blind, but now I see. That was the story of John Newton's life. Is it the story of your life? The broken part is the story of your life. How about the new life? Now, we need to understand a little bit about how this grace comes to us, this undeserved, unearned favor. Paul says that it comes to us by means of faith. Going back to Ephesians chapter 2 again, beginning at verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This grace comes to us by means of faith. Faith is the conduit. Back following World War I, Lawrence of Arabia, you know, was this famous British officer, um, T.S. Lawrence, had served uh, in the desert with the Arabs, Uh, After the end of World War I, because he had served with them and he knew their culture, there were a number of them that wanted to know the world that he came from. And so the story goes that Lawrence decided that he would take some of his Arab friends, his closest compatriots, and he would take them to a European city so that they could see where he came from. He had grown to respect their culture. They were comrades in arms. They wanted to know the kind of world that he came from. And he decided to take them to, in what in that day was the most glamorous city of the time. That was Paris. And he did. He took them to Paris, and he showed them all around. And they went up the Champs-Élysées, and they saw Napoleon's tomb, and they saw everything. 
But on the last day of their time together, he had them stay in a magnificent hotel in central Paris. And of all the things that they'd seen, the thing that fascinated them the most was the sink in the bathroom. Now, imagine going to Paris and being impressed more than anything else by a sink in a bathroom. But that's what they were fascinated by. Why? Because they had never seen water come out of a pipe before. You turn a knob, fresh water. Now, remember, these are people that were raised in the desert. Water was a precious commodity, more precious, in fact, than oil today. And so they had never seen anything like that. Oh, they weren't concerned about the Champs-Élysées or Napoleon's tomb. Who cares about that? Turn a knob and cool, refreshing, life-giving water comes out. And so on the last days they were preparing to leave, he went in to get them, Lawrence did, and all of a sudden he heard this clanging and banging in the bathroom. And he went in and he saw them with wrenches and with tools, desperately trying to detach the sink from the wall of the hotel. And he asked them, he said, what are you doing? And they said, well, you don't understand what a difference this would make in our world. And he said, no, no, you, you don't understand. He had to explain to them that the sink was not the source. It was merely the conduit. He had to explain to them that there were pipes that ran through the whole city up into the Alps, and that was the source of the water. And unless they were connected to the source, it would make no difference whatsoever. Well, that's what Paul is talking about here. He said, we are saved by grace... Not by works, but the conduit of that grace, the pipes, the means by which it comes to our life, is faith. It's faith. Now, faith isn't important. Paul talks about faith all the time. In fact, the Bible tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But faith is a very misunderstood concept in our day and age. You see that quote up there from Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins says, faith is the great cop-out. The great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. That's what many people would have us believe. That's what faith really is. But I submit to you that we have faith, faith in everything. Stand up for just a moment. This is a little exercise in faith. Now, looking straight at me, go ahead and sit back down again. Well, none of you actually took a look to see if anybody had pulled out the chair from behind you. Uh, nobody had ever actually looked to see if the, the chair was capable of holding you. You simply what? You trusted the people behind you. You trusted that that chair was capable of holding you. Go ahead. What do you... Oh ye, of, oh, ye of little faith. Listen, we exercise faith all the time. Faith is not simply believing in the face of the lack of evidence. Faith is trusting based on past evidence or experience. That's what faith is, and we exercise faith in every aspect of our life particularly in the things that matter most. Anybody that has a marriage understands that it has to be built upon faith. The Greek word is pistis. It means trust. If there is no faith, there is no trust. There is no relationship. 
So don't let anybody lull you into believing that faith is just a belief in spite of a lack of evidence. It is just the opposite. It is believing based on the evidence. Nevertheless, Dawkins does do something for us. He reminds us that when it comes to understanding faith, we need to understand what it is not. So let's just go through a few things that faith is not. Faith is not a subjective feeling. Now, that's what Richard Dawkins is suggesting to us, but it is not. It is not a gut feeling. When I was in college some years ago, I was um, talking to a, a young man that was on my floor in my dorm. We got to talking, and he discovered that I was a Christian, and he described himself as a Christian. And I thought, well, that was great. You know, we were in a secular university, and sometimes it's difficult to find Christian fellowship in that kind of an environment. And so I thought, well, I've got a Christian friend. But as time went by, I began to realize he didn't believe anything that I believed. I wasn't even sure that he actually believed in the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so one day we were sitting there, and I'm having a conversation with him, and I said, listen, I don't think you are a Christian. I said, you don't seem to believe in the Trinity. You're not sure that Jesus was the Son of God. You don't believe in the bodily resurrection. I said, you're not really a Christian at all. And he said, oh, yes, I am. And I said, well, how do you know? He says, I just know it in my heart. I see, that's that's what we call a gut feeling. It's a subjective feeling. I am, why? Because I say I am. Because I feel it. Well, that is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is not a subjective feeling. Nor is biblical faith credulity. That is also what Richard Dawkins is alluding to. What is credulity? It's hope against hope. I can't bear the prospect that this is untrue, therefore I choose to believe in it. Hope against hope. Well, that is not biblical faith either. And the third thing that biblical faith is not, it is not optimism. Self-confidence, PMA, positive mental attitude. That's what you need more than anything else. Some years ago, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale wrote a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. If you believe it, you can make it a reality. Well, don't get me wrong. I think there is something to be said for optimism. I'll be the first one to admit I like to be around optimistic people rather than pessimistic people. But optimism is not the same thing as biblical faith. So biblical faith is not a gut feeling. It's not hope against hope. It's not merely self-confidence. What is biblical faith? What is this conduit by which God's amazing grace comes to us? It contains three elements. First of all, it contains an intellectual content head knowledge. In order to have faith in something, you need to understand the something. It's interesting to note that in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, be renewed by the transforming of your mind. I like to tell people salvation really begins not in the heart, it begins in the mind. You need to understand what you believe in. Now, it can't remain in the mind, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But once your mind is renewed, hopefully that's going to make a difference in your heart. And if it makes a difference in your heart, it's going to make a difference in your life, in the way that you live. But it has to start with your mind. You need to understand what you're placing your faith in. If you claim to be a Christian and have Christian faith, 
You've got to believe in the Jesus Christ who is revealed in the Bible, the God who is revealed in the creeds. So biblical faith has an element of head knowledge. Of course it does. But as I said, it doesn't stop there. That head knowledge should make a difference in the way we live our lives. It should move from the head to the heart. Now, somebody has said the longest distance is that distance between the head and the heart in Christian salvation, and it's probably true. But the heart response means that there is a sense in which you not only believe these things to be true intellectually, but they made a difference in the way you act, in the way you conduct your life. This is what John Wesley said. You know the story of John Wesley. Wesley had gone to Oxford University. His father had been a clergyman. He had been trained. He'd been ordained by the Bishop of Oxford. He was sent to America to convert the heathens. And he said, lo and behold, when I got here, I discovered that I myself had never been converted. He was an abject failure in Savannah, Georgia. Came here, and the rector of St. Philip sort of shoved him along a little bit, and he got on his ship, and he went back to England. And when he was on his way back to England, he encountered a group of Moravians. And these Moravian Christians, German Christians, were impressed of him. My goodness, he knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. He memorized the entire book of Psalms. He was a brilliant scholar, Oxford degree. And yet they noticed that, wow, he had a great deal of knowledge about God. He really didn't know God. And they told him that. And he was very troubled by it. He didn't know what to make of that. And one night, the story goes, he was wandering, really troubled, through the Aldersgate section of London, and he wandered into a little Moravian chapel, and he heard the minister up there reading from Martin Luther's commentary on Paul's epistle to Romans. And he said, as he sat there and he listened to those words, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt my heart strangely warmed. He had the head knowledge. He knew what he was to believe in, but he never had that warming of the heart until that moment. It's interesting to note his brother had the same warming of the heart two weeks earlier, Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley, I think I've told you this before, was the more musically inclined, the more artistically inclined of the two brothers. He wanted to spend his life writing hymns. Until his conversion, he'd never written a single one. After his strange warming of the heart, he would go on to write 6,500 of them. Among them, great hymns like Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, and Anne can it be, and hark the herald angels sing. See, it's not enough to have that head knowledge. There's got to be a strange warming of the heart, and that's what happened. So biblical faith involves head knowledge, yes. It also involves a heart response, but then finally it involves commitment. It's not enough simply to believe this unless you are committed to it. If you think about it, biblical faith is a lot like marriage, isn't it? The first part, the head knowledge, is that period of courtship. Young people court for a very long time these days, it seems. My son is getting married in August, and he's been dating the girl for eight years. And at one point he said, Dad, I'm not sure I know her. I said, if you don't know her now, you'll never know her. <laughs> Courtship. What's that old song from the king and I? Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. There you go, see? That's it. Biblical faith is like a marriage. The first part is getting to know, getting to know about God. 
But in any marriage, you can't just get to know about somebody. If the marriage is going to last, something else needs to happen. What happens? That head knowledge moves to a heart, a warming of the heart. You fall in love. Every time I do premarital counseling, it's interesting. You can ask couples, tell me your story. And everybody's story is a little bit different. Some of them met on a blind date. Some of them met in college. Some of them were high school sweethearts. Some of them met on some sort of internet site. But there always comes a point where the stories converge and they say, we fell in love. We fell in love. But then again, if you've gotten to know the person, and you've fallen in love with the person, you need to do the right thing, don't you? You commit to that person. You get married. That's a wonderful picture of biblical faith. You get to know about Jesus Christ. You begin to fall in love with Jesus Christ. And then you commit yourself and your life till death you do part to Jesus Christ. Tell me, where are you in the courtship process? Do you know about Jesus Christ? Have you fallen in love with Jesus Christ? And if you've fallen in love with Jesus Christ, are you ready to get married? To be committed to him? With all your worldly goods, you do him endow. Until death you do part. That's what biblical faith really looks like. So Paul says we are saved by grace through faith. But then he goes on to say this, it is not by works. It is not by works. One of the things we have to remember is that not even faith is a work. Why is faith not a work? Why is faith a gift? Because we're dead. God has to make us alive again. See, you can't have faith when you're dead. Dead people can't have faith in anything. They can't do anything. So even faith itself is a gift not a work. There's this wonderful quote by C.S. Lewis. He describes his own conversion in this way, and this was in the book Surprised by Joy. He says, the odd thing was that before God closed in on me, and I love that expression, God closed in on me, I was in fact offered what now appears a moment of holy free choice. That's what we think. We think we choose Christ. And in a sense, I was going up Headington Hill on the top of a bus. Without words, and I think almost without images, a fact about myself was somehow presented to me. I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out, or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like corsets or even a suit of armor as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty, nor threat or promise was attached to either, though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corset meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. But I love this last line. I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. Ever found that to be true? If you're a Christian today and 
You remember that moment when you just suddenly fell in love with Jesus Christ? And when you suddenly committed to Jesus Christ? And you think that you committed your life to him. You think that you received Jesus Christ. How many of you ever had that expression or that experience of receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? Don't be, don't be ashamed if you haven't, but if you have. Now let me ask you this question. Did it feel like you were receiving him, that you had a free choice? One of the amazing things is that if you look back over the course of your life, you will begin to realize, especially as you mature in Christ, that God was orchestrating all of these things to bring you to the point of decision whereby you made a choice for Christ, but there is a sense, as C.S. Lewis said, that you couldn't have done otherwise. In today's gospel lesson, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Even faith you see, is not a work. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. Have you been saved by grace? Can you look back over the course of your life and realize that it's nothing but a broken pitcher? Do you realize that God in his great mercy made you alive even when you were dead? Have you received that fact Has that knowledge sunk into your mind, into your brain? And having sunken in, have you fallen in love with him who gave up everything for you? And having fallen in love with Jesus Christ, are you prepared to commit your life to him? To give everything that you have for his service? Yes, we have been saved by grace. We have been saved from something. But... Paul says, we have also been saved for something. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you've never met the one to whom you should be engaged. It would be my great pleasure to introduce you to him. It be the great pleasure of any of the clergy to introduce you to Jesus Christ. And as you get to know him, I promise you, you will fall in love with him. And if you're already in love with him, commit to him. Give your life to him. And he will give the world to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your amazing grace that saved the wretch like me. We all were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. You've raised us up. You've given us a new perspective, a new relationship. As we walk with you, grant us the grace to fall in love with you daily and commit our lives to you. For we ask it in your name and for your glory. Amen. Thank you.